Welcome to Research Lives and Culture, the podcast that offers conversations about the research environment. Each week I interview someone who works or has previously worked in research. We discuss about the approach they have taken to navigate their career, the critical decisions they have made, the joys they have had in their work, and the challenges that they have faced. I ask questions about what a supportive research environment really looks like, and about the actions that we can take to help the research culture empower people to thrive. My name is Dr. Sandrine Sou. I am a coach, facilitator, and trainer for the research environment, and your host on this podcast. I am committed to ease the path to research careers by sharing stories of researchers' lives. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. This is Sandrine Soub on the podcast Research, Lives and Culture. And today I've got the pleasure of receiving Professor Roger Barker from the University of Cambridge. And I've invited him to talk about something very specific that, of course, is of great relevance to anybody in research. It's about research funding. It's one of these uh, really challenging things that people face throughout their career. And that, in a way, makes or breaks research, uh, research lives, really. So before we get into the meat of the topic of accessing research funding, Roger, can you tell us a little bit about your early research life? How did you get started in, in research? Yeah, so I'm, I'm medically qualified. So I essentially followed my clinical training, preclinical, clinical, and then did all the junior jobs, which you do in the UK. And then I elected to do a PhD in Cambridge, which was when I came here in 1991, so many years ago. And in those days, it was relatively straightforward. I got a PhD studentship or fellowship, did that. And that, of course, uh, ignited my interest in research. And then after that, I went back and finished my training in neurology and then came back with a further fellowship. And from there, I've developed my research interests, which are very clinically orientated. And so I have this slightly uh, sort of hybrid life where I'm half a neurologist working on the wards, dealing with patients in clinics and half doing research, of which half of that is clinical research. So I sort of cover a lot of bases. But but originally, I got into research because I was always interested in research and came to it through a PhD and then subsequently a more senior clinical fellowship. Can you give us a few words about the type of research that you do? I didn't say at the beginning, you, you work in the, the Department of Clinical Sciences, and obviously it covers a, a great many different topics. So what's your specialism? Yeah, so I work around two diseases, really, Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease. So two chronic degenerative diseases of the brain, which have some similarities in the areas of the brain they affect, but also have rather different bases. Parkinson's largely sporadic, late onset, Huntington's disease genetic tends to come on earlier in life. So we do a lot of research around clinical aspects of that, trying to understand the different uh, features that people have with these conditions, why people develop different types of Parkinson's, Huntington's disease, what's the basis for that, can we understand the mechanisms and therefore target treatments more specifically to subgroups of patients. And the area which I'm particularly interested with respect to that is mainly cell therapies. So how can we repair the brain by transplanting cells? in to replace those that are lost a part of the disease process and reconnect and make circuits and, and return people back to normal. So it, it's a lot of clinical work around characterization, translation of therapeutics. So we do a lot of trial work as well as clinical work whilst doing some basic lab work around disease modeling and trying to understand what we see in the clinic in the lab. Once you had done your PhD, then what was the path that you got into getting your first research project? Because obviously for most PhD students, often we get into a PhD, not necessarily having written the research proposal ourselves. It's probably different in other disciplines where students really spend the first year developing the research project and, and writing a proposal. But in the sciences and in biology in particular, often we are handed a project that the academic was working on before and we don't get an opportunity to actually write the project. So at the end of your PhD, and obviously in your case, having the clinical element is probably different than a lot of postdoctoral, your, your basic postdoctoral researchers. So what was the first step for you into starting to access research funding? 
Yes, I mean, it's, it, it, you're absolutely right. It's slightly different for a clinician because I applied for a fellowship in order to do my PhD because we're quite expensive. So you have to find your own funding to do that. And there are very limited routes by which you can do that. But if, but in those days, it was relatively straightforward. You wrote two paragraphs on roughly what you wanted to do. You sent it off. They looked at your CV. They gave you the money and off you went. There was no interview. There was nothing else. That all changed during the course of my PhD and the subsequent training. So by the time I came back to get a further fellowship six years later, it was much harder. And the big problem in the clinical world, which I think is true of all scientific world, is the number of opportunities are relatively small. So in the late 90s, when I was applying, there were essentially the MLC in the UK and the Wellcome Trust. And that was it. So you had to get one of those two in order to carry on doing further research because you are quite expensive because you're you're heading towards being a consultant in your specialty. And there aren't many of them that are handed out every year. So I was always at a very early stage empowered, if you like, with writing my own proposals because I had to defend them and I had to be interviewed on them. Now, obviously, they had to be taken in the context where I wanted to work. And because I wanted to work on brain repair and cell therapies, as we were discussing, in the UK, there was almost nowhere that did it outside of Cambridge. So Steve Dunnett and James Fawcett, who were my PhD supervisors in Cambridge, were really the people who led the field in it. So it was an obvious place to stay and do that work. So the work had to obviously marry up with what their programs of research were, but it was very much my own project based on what I wanted to uh, take forward. Uh, and it, once you're in that position, obviously then one has to get the university position and then you can start applying for, for grants in a more normal way, really. What do you think was your approach after the PhD? Because they, there is, a, in a way, a transition from doing the work. I mean, if you had already sort of submitted a proposal, but in a way, the transition from the work that you were doing with your PhD supervisor to then writing a research proposal for a fellowship or the type of funding that then become your own work. And in a way, that set the path for the work that you want to do long term, because obviously there are often challenging conversation in maybe letting go part yeah. of the project that you were doing during the PhD that kind of belong to the academic to work, to deciding actually that's really what I want to do and that's really my past, my projects and so on. How did it work like that for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question and it's always a tension. So obviously, as you're evolving out of your PhD, you have to be faithful to what you've done previously. You can't suddenly change fields. Most people don't suddenly change fields. But obviously, you then find yourself working in an area which is very much associated with your supervisor and may even be directly competing with your supervisor. And from the outside world, I always think, why on earth would you fund me when my supervisor is much better uh, known and has a much greater history of working in it? So somehow trying to take what you've learned and channel it and, and move it into an area where you have ownership, if you like, which is distinct but related to that which we've done with your PhD and also relates to, to especially with my fellowship, to the, to the lab in which I'm working. Now, now, for me, it was a little bit easier in the sense that as a clinician and my supervisors were not, I have, a, I have an instant advantage in where I can take the work. But it is very difficult, and I struggled with that a lot. And I think, I think to be honest, one struggles more as the student coming through than the supervisor looking down at the student, if you like. So now that it's the other way around, uh, I don't see these problems necessarily as, as, as perhaps as clearly as, as, the, as the PhD students becoming the postdocs and what, what is going to be their distinct area of research, which is distinct from me. So I think that's quite difficult, to be honest. I mean, I was fortunate in that I picked an area which was a bit on the periphery of where my supervisor really wanted to work, but related to it. So I could take that forward. And then actually my supervisor moved from Cambridge to Cardiff. So Steve Dunnett moved there, which then, of course, left me with the advantage in some ways that, that I now had had the place to myself because there was no one there working on it. I was the I was the person working in that area. The the downside of that was I was suddenly exposed on a funding front because obviously being attached to a well-funded big group gives you a degree of security when suddenly when you're on your own you may have freedom to develop your own ideas and your own independence but but you're faced by the reality of where's that money going to come from to support it as you were saying right at the beginning so in your case what, what was your approach to be writing your first independent research project and and again, I think that they often people look at the, the big funders and it's a bit scary to get started. So how did you go about it in a way from developing the idea 
and to actually having deciding what funding you are going to go for in the in this early years of accessing research funding yes i mean it, it was i mean it's a bit it was a bit difficult in some ways because there's obviously limited number of sources you can go to and each of them have their own particular bias on what they want to see and the very first grant i ever wrote during my sort of intermediate fellowship that was an was an mlc grant which i got uh, so the first grant i ever wrote i got and i thought well this is obviously not as difficult as people tell me so and it was it was for an integrated network so it's quite ambitious i then wrote another 17 grants before i got the next one. Oh wow so, that's yeah <laughs> so so the one thing i learned was that you need to be very patient uh, and you need to persevere and I think part of the problem was I wrote a lot and didn't get anywhere. I was unclear in my own mind exactly what it was that I really wanted to study. And I was very heavily influenced by two things, really. One was by looking at the funders and thinking what they would like to see. So I slightly angled my proposal, which is reasonable, but to the point where actually it's not something that they would associate with me. And I think I was also, which is a tendency, I think, for all people when they start to be super ambitious about what they can achieve and hope to achieve. And if it's not super ambitious, you think the funders won't won't be interested in it. So I think this lack of clarity in my own mind about what I really wanted to study, what it what was actually realistic to achieve, I think, were, were two big problems early on. And I think once I decided that actually really what I was particularly interested in, especially at that stage, was characterizing subtypes of Parkinson's disease, trying to understand the basis for that and then marry up treatments to that. That's that's the key goal rather than I'm quite interested in this cell. I'm quite interested in that model. It just sort of it, it sort of ran all over the place, really. So I think I think it was understanding what I really wanted to do, because once you've got that, you will get funding. You just have to persevere. And eventually you'll get something and be grateful for everything you get and then build on that, really. I mean, one element that you touch upon here, which is a really hard one, you may have an idea of a project that you want to do. And in a way, a lack of clarity of who will be prepared to fund it. Matching between your idea of what you think is important and actually at the same time, the agenda of the funders. And it needs to be aligned. But from what you were saying earlier is that you were trying to align it too much or you were too driven by what they wanted in and not kind of, I don't know, developing your own thinking about where you wanted to go. Is that, is that what, yeah. uh, what you're saying? Yeah, well, I think when people make calls and they'll say, so the current climate, for example, it would be how does COVID-19 impact on Parkinson's? So you suddenly think, well, that is my research. I'm fascinated by COVID-19 and Parkinson's, which I'm not particularly. So I would then write a proposal which would be in the area which I know about but I would try and bring in elements which which I'm not so I would try and change things which I think would fit in with with sort of calls that people were making and also what other people had told me that they really wanted mm. so I think these were these were issues and I suppose where I was really exposed on this is this idea of pilot data which which was a bit of a novelty so of course I had had the experience that I wrote two paragraphs on just what I thought about brain repair sent it off and got my first PhD students so I thought I mean there, was, there wasn't any experiments and it was just a few ideas and then the second one had to be a bit more structured around ideas but this idea that you had to have pilot data which is clearly critical and the fact that you therefore felt that I could I could twist my project to your call I could sort of spin it in the way that you would like to see it but obviously I didn't have any data in that you just have to take my word for it I could do it and I sort of know about it so so I think that was a mistake that I made was I think paying too much attention to what other people said you needed to definitely put in your grant and therefore the deficiencies which result from that were obvious and I would not have funded those 17 grants I may have funded bits of it but not all of it and that and that was also I found the other thing frustrating was I the absence of an iterative process I, I the binary outcomes of grants has always been something I've struggled with rather than you've put in three experiments Roger one is a complete non-starter one is fantastic and one we're not sure about so come back with a, with a one or two experiment and we will fund it that sort of to me is a much more better way of doing science and funding people but sadly isn't really how most people operate so so I think that was that was a problem really and I think also that there were very limited sources I think there's more nowadays although 
in the UK now. We're not quite sure what our position is within the EU. It makes it difficult. But but EU funding was a great opportunity to link up to other people and to do more work, which I've been a great beneficiary of over the last two decades, really. I mean, so one of the things you mentioned is pilot data, and that's something that comes up a lot in conversation that I've had with with postdocs and research fellows. And people always ask, how much pilot data do I need in this application? And I mean, from your experience of reviewing a lot of grants, what is really needed and what is really the the role that the pilot data needs to serve because you could be doing the entire research of the project <laughs> and put it in your, everything yeah. is the pilot data. And at the same time, a great challenge that postdocs have is that they need to negotiate probably with their PI access to resources to develop the pilot data. So it, it, there is a lot of negotiation going on. As a reviewer, when you're looking at, at a fellowship or at a grant, what, what do you really want to see? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. So NIH, they always used to say that your pilot data was it was basically the entire grant. So, so you were writing your grant for all the data you'd already got. <laughs> and therefore, when you could predict what might go wrong with the experiments, you could predict it with absolute certainty and how you deal with it because you'd already done it. I think for me, it obviously depends on what level you're you're reviewing grants. But but if we're talking about the sort of postdoc level, I think the key thing is to have confidence that the the person putting the application is understands the technique and the technologies. So there is a tendency to sort of just throw in the things which are around. So I'll do single cell transcriptomic and you'll say, great, but you've never done it. I can't see where your bioinformatics pipeline is. So whilst it's an obvious technique to use, I'm not entirely convinced that you, that you can do it. So how is that going to be done? Or if someone's come up with a with a new way of gene editing and you'll say, well, it, in theory, it sounds fantastic, but I mean, is there any evidence you can actually get this to work and edit the gene you're interested in? And so I think key bits of evidence or key bits of data which make it feasible for you to do the work is important so it's normally critical bits of data which make the hypothesis likely to be worth pursuing and technical bits of data which give you confidence that the that the technologies can be done but not everything because then of course if you put everything in people just say well you've already done it so you don't need funding for it uh, and if you're using a lot of data you've already published, then people will say, well, it's not really adventurous enough, this research. It's it's pretty much more of the same and just tidying up what you've already done. So it is difficult. But but I think I think for me, those are the critical issues which I like to see in a, an application. Evidence that the hypothesis is likely to be correct or at least testable and interesting and that you can actually technically do it. Or if you can't, someone who can. And And this element of negotiating with your PI to be given the time to work on, on a side projects that could contribute to a fellowship. I mean, I remember a really terrible story of, of a postdoc who was trying to develop some pilot data for a fellowship. And then his PI put the data, the pilot data in his own grant. And the postdoc was really just yeah. really, really upset. And I don't know what 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 then eventually happened with, with the relationship. But, they, they was, I don't know whether they had not discussed it beforehand. I, I don't know the, the, all of the details, but I know there was a lot of anxiety and frustration. So what, what advice do you, how do you negotiate that with your own postdocs? Or, you know, which advice would you give in terms of having this conversation early on? I think it's very important to have the conversation. That's the first thing to say. I, I, I think it's also, it's obviously very individual specific so obviously PIs run things in different ways and have different views on what is a success so for me my own view has always been the success of the research you do is not just what you produce but what everyone who's in the lab has produced and gone on to do so I if someone is successful following leaving the lab that is that I can think of nothing better than that so so it's not that I feel they're competing with me and I and they've taken things that I wish I'd done I think it's terrific that they they've become independent and done their own work so I think that's important. I think, I think it's, I think it's also very dependent where people are in their careers as well. So this is always a difficult one. If you're a postdoc, do I go to a lab where there's a relatively young new PI, who's got lots of energy, lots of ideas? You probably you'll get to know your PI very well because you're in a small lab. You're, you're fighting together to survive and and do the work. The, the problem then is one of funding, as we've discussed, but also 
he needs the he or she needs those papers as much as you do so then the tension between the postdoc forging their own way in the pi is is i is slightly more difficult whereas in a big lab well established old pi they don't need the publications as much they have the the papers but you probably have less interactions so it's always a bit of a tension i think my view is that that you know most people who are successful so if i look around all the people for example, in my local environment, Cambridge, you've been very successful postdocs and now group leaders. What they've all managed to do is work in labs which have been very much at the cutting edge and they've taken a project and they've sort of taken ownership of it. And both the PI and the postdoc have had equal recognition. And, and I think that's the skill is to say, well, Sandrine, you've developed this fantastic technology to answer these questions about brain development you're the person that drove it in the lab. You're the person they will come to for the technical issues. It was my lab in which we had the ideas on this is how we could do it. So I'm credited with the fact this is part of a string of, of discoveries we've made over the years about how we approach the problem. So it's it's trying to get that, that moving in the direction where you own with your fellowship whilst the PI can say, well, I, it's within my lab, I can still use it. And we all go in slightly different ways with, with that project. But it is, it is such a personal thing. And that's, that is always the tension, really. There are some people who are more generous in this area than others. But it is a bit dependent on where, where everybody is in their careers and just how important that discovery or that technology or technique is. If you reflect on many years of writing grants, how do you think that you've changed the way that you are writing them now? Yeah, so I suppose I've, I've, I suppose what I've learned is I, I will only apply for things that I want to do based on my early experiences. So, so if there is a call that comes out in an area which I could in theory apply for, I will not apply for it if I'm not fundamentally interested in it and that in the past has led me to resign from various big grants and send money back because I realized I'd made a mistake entering into something which was a distraction from what I wanted to do so I tend to write grants on the things which I'm interested in and want to take forward myself so if I have an idea on what we want to do I will go looking to find the source that will fund what I want to do so that's the first thing I do. I've become much more proactive in directing my own research and finding the funding rather than looking around and responding to calls. But that, of course, comes with having a degree of security and funding, which is there. I think the second thing which I've learned about writing grants over the years, and this is also true of reviewing them, simplicity is a wonderful thing. So I think the very best grants which I've reviewed are in areas which I know relatively little about. But you read the hypothesis, the aims, the introductory paragraph, and you think, got it. Understand this. Fabulous. Never thought you could never thought about this with Drosophila. But I got it. It's a very clear hypothesis. It's a very clever idea. I can see how you can do it. And if I'm writing it, I have to make sure that I, I will know those technical uh, details or, or work with people who do. So I think simplicity on what you write and not overloading grants, which I think is what one tends to do. I also seek a huge amount of feedback on those grant applications so that I'll get lots of people to read it. Uh, and I want people to be very critical. So I think one of the problems early on was if I wasn't quite sure about something, I'd write it and say... It's fine. I mean, it's it sort of dealt with it. If no one asks, we're fine. But actually, as a reviewer, you'll instantly spot the bits where you think this is all a bit fluffy. They don't really know what they're talking about here. So people being very critical of what we write and doing various iterations and preparing a long time in advance, I think is important. How long does it tend to take you from an idea that you have to actually sending the grants? I guess it's very hard to give an answer, but in your case, from saying, okay, I quite like to do something about this, how long that can it take you? Well, it will take, I would have thought the earliest you can do anything is six months. And some have taken several years. So it, it obviously depends what your ambition is, what you're trying to do. So, for example, we undertook a transplant trial in Parkinson's with, with fetal dopamine cells, which was funded by the European Union in 2009 and started in 2010. We began the discussions on how to do that in 2006. And we went through two reviews with other grant bodies, which we didn't get. So so we learned from that. So that took that took 
three or four years for that one. Other ones, often it will take, for a fellowship, it will take at least six months, I think, to write it because I think giving yourself plenty of time to spot the problems and then uh, coming back to an earlier point, spotting key bits of information that you thought you had, but you don't actually have is very important. So I, I think it's at least six months because for most, most people never really realise this. Most grants are rejected, like most papers are rejected. People always feel very upset when their papers, re- their grants turn down. The vast majority of grants, the vast majority of papers are rejected. So, and they are recycled. So it would be very unusual to write a grant and say, well, unless they said the idea was terrible, the data was terrible and the whole thing, which one's never had. But you would look at it and say, okay, it didn't get funded there. What is it they liked? What did they not like? How can I now modify what I've written so I can take it through? So so grants then can take quite a time to write because obviously you're, you're changing it as you go. I mean, so that's an important point because once you've had a grant rejected, I mean, you may have already invested many months, then how do you build the resilience to go back at it and in a way review it and change it and redraft it. The ideas that you put in them are things that you want the answer. <laughs> You're very unlikely to, to want to let go. So yeah. what is your own approach from receiving a negative response and probably feeling really miserable and frustrated and angry to actually regaining the energy to work on it again in a different way and reshape it and redraft it? What's your actual process? Well, I think it comes back to something I said earlier, which is that you have to believe in what you're doing. So if you're a bit half-hearted about anything, I would be quite interested in that. A rejection, you'll think, well, forget it. So, So you have to be motivated to do it. And you're absolutely right. I mean, your first response when you get it is outrage. How could anyone turn this down? Then it becomes anger that the reviewers' comments are just ridiculous. I can't believe anyone's written this. And then you just have to take a bit of time to reflect on it and think in this, there will be some some useful information which we can build into it. Now, you know, that's not to say all the criticisms you get is useful. Sometimes people do write things which are seemingly unhelpful, either about yourself personally, which I've had, about the whole field, which you can't change. I mean, if they don't believe in the field, they don't believe in the field. There's nothing I can do to change that. But normally there are helpful comments which will enable you to go back and look at the grants and say, how can I modify it based on these comments and take it forward? Now, it may be the comments are such that you think I cannot realistically answer these. And I don't think, and they're good points. So I think I'm going to have to let this project go because it's, so we had one where we were trying to develop new ligands for for looking at things in the brain, delivering them through a, a rabies virus glycoprotein delivery system. And there were some very technical questions. And I spoke to people in chemistry, spoke to people in radiochemistry. And I don't think we can answer. So actually, I'm afraid without them, and we could answer them if we had a lot of money, but we don't have the money to do it. So we're a bit in a catch-22 situation. So I think you have to have the resilience to say, well, actually, this is what I want to do. Let me think about it and modify it. So recently, we had a grant for a small trial in Huntsies, which I thought was the perfect example of how a trial, how a grant should go. We put in the grant. We were originally... We put a letter of intent. We were asked to put in a full grant through one funding agency. We got completely slaughtered with the full grant, even though we were told this was one of the best grants they'd seen in the letter of intent. They completely took us to pieces. Now, probably three quarters of that information was because they didn't like the field. But within it, there were some good points. We rewrote it. We sent it to another source. They came back with further comments. We rewrote it. We had further comments. We rewrote it. And now we're funding and we're ready to go. And the, the, the study we will now do is infinitely better than the one we began with. And that is to me how it should be, how it should work. But but it's terribly easy to get demoralized or to become very defensive. And when you become very defensive, you can become quite arrogant and say, they don't know what they're talking about. I do. I'm just going to keep writing the same thing. And this is a very natural thing. So I've had it with PhD students and postdocs in my group, mainly with papers. They'll say, I'm just going to send it somewhere else. And you'll say, yeah, but you're going to get the same comments. They'll say, no, they're just stupid, these people. And you'll say, yeah, but everybody else says the opposite. We're saying this. You're going to have to have a bit more evidence (laughs) or at least be a bit conciliatory that the findings may not be quite as we interpret them. So uh, uh, resilience is very important, I think, in the world of research and I often say this to people because the people are very successful. You will only see their successes. So Yamanaka and his IPS, 
everyone will know his papers. You won't know how many papers he got rejected before that. You don't know how many papers he's got rejected after that. And you won't know which grants he's put in and hasn't got. It's more than likely you'll get him now post now wheel prize. But I know lots of people are very established, very well-known scientists who've had papers rejected and grants rejected. So it's important to remember everybody still has it and it still hurts. So even if you've done it for 20, 30, 40 years, getting rejection is never a nice thing, but trying to not take it too personally, stand back from it, review it and think, I really want to do this. How can I do it? And how can I make it better? I mean, in, practi in practical terms, what do you do to kind of build this resilience? I mean, some people will say, well, you just get on with it. But is there something that you do? I don't know of I don't, let, letting go a couple of months before you look at it again. Well, in, in your own experience, what works for you to kind of have, again, regain the energy to look at it again? Yeah, I think for me, it's other people. So, so I'm a great believer in working in teams. And I think science, one of the big changes in science in my lifetime has been from the individual in the lab to consortia to groups of people because the technologies have moved so fast and they're so complicated, people just can't do it. So, so for me, what I really like to do with such grants is to reflect on the comments with the people who've been involved with it. Because it's very, I mean, I would never put in a grant just on my own, even for a fellowship, which I don't do, obviously, nowadays. But I went for an ERC grant, which I didn't get. But that was my personal fellowship. But again, it's built on a team of people working. So I like to sit down with the team and, and all those most involved with it and reflect. So part of it is just venting. So we all just complain, get that out of our system. And then you critically engage with the comments and say, where can we go next? How can we do this? And, it, and resilience becomes, as I say, it never goes away, but you get better at it the more you have. And all of us have had a lot. So I think I think that's the way I cope with it. So I don't I don't sort of put it in a drawer and forget about it. I sort of think I want to get on with this. Let me get together the people who have been involved with it. Let's reflect on it and then let's find out where we can go next. Now, sometimes it may need several months because with funding calls, you can go back, but there's a natural gap between them. That's really interesting because it's kind of using the energy of the group and the dynamic of this interaction to reboost your energy to go back to the drawing table and rethink a project. So one of the questions that I have is about your own approach as a reviewer. So when you when you ask to be a reviewer, I mean, obviously, it's something that's not paid. It's often seen as something of a prestige in the career of academics, being invited to be a reviewer for other grants. At the same time, it takes away a lot of time from your own day-to-day -day job. So can you tell us a little bit so that for the researcher, the early career researcher who are start, starting on that journey, what it's really like to be in the shoes of a reviewer? What does it feel like in practice? Do you do your reviewing very late at night when you've had your whole day in, your, in, in the hospital and in the lab? And do you do it with a glass of wine? What's really in practice the reality of being a reviewer? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. What you should say is, of course, I get up first thing in the morning and I do nothing else but review uh, one grant a day and spend eight hours on it. And, and with nothing to distract me, emails, uh, drink, anything like that. Uh, the reality is that people often have to fit their reviewing in around the other activities they're doing. So it's probably fair to say people might not necessarily give the attention to the reviewing process, which they should do. It obviously varies from individual to individual. So I chaired an, an ERC committee, a European Research Council committee on fellowships. And I was terribly impressed by the level of attention that people gave the reviewing process there. That for me is something one should aspire to do. So, so the difficulty I would say with reviewing is if you've got one or two to do, it's relatively easy. If you're part of a review panel and you have, uh, as I did for the ERC 130, that is a lot of reviewing. So it's terribly hard to, re to take each grant on its own merits because you, if you're 129th, you're probably going to do quite well because you're getting towards the end. 
if you're 65 it's a bit difficult one you might be quite critical because it's the first one so so you have to counter against that as a reviewer but but people who have their grants reviewed need to bear in mind where people are looking at it so that then i think comes back a bit to how you write grants so the things which are very attractive and this is true of exam essays and and papers and everything you ever submit is if you imagine what it's like on the other side that the person wants you need to grab the person's attention tell them what you're going to do and tell them how you're going to do it and have that up front so when they've got tired they've got what it's about so for me that's very important when i'm reviewing that, that it's very clear and if i have to keep going back and reading and reading and trying to dig down on things you're instantly irritated by the the grant and similarly it's 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 little things like hugely dense text with you know thumbnail figures which you can't read you can't it just overwhelms you and, and you and it's very hard to keep your attention with it so for me i try and read the grant and i would say what is it you want to do what's the big question here how are you going to do it i try and limit the amount of reviewing i do if i've got a lot of grants to do because i know that i will start to lose my attention after i've done a, a certain number i as the years have gone by i've tried to actually carve out time for it so i've got a massive review exercise this year for the the so-called ref in the uk so i'm part of one of their committees so that's a huge amount of reviewing so i have put days aside every week where i will do nothing but review but the reality is most people's grants will be read on planes in the evening when there's a few moments in the in the in the, in the lab but good reviewers if you get a good review it's fantastic i think people are generally much more attentive to it now than they they used to be I think as a chairman of a review committee, that the problem that people run into when they're reviewing is they're often scared of being critical. So they simply write a, a long review as people get their papers, which is essentially just a summary of the paper or the grant. So it doesn't really engage with it. So I always think a good way to review grants is what are the pros of this grant? What are the good things about this grant? And what are the problems with it? And so I think when you're writing a grant, get people to review it and say what what is good about this grant and what is bad about it and and don't be afraid of, of being critical about it so I think I had someone a few years ago who came to see me about applying for a, a fairly senior fellowship in the ERC and I said you just won't get it and they said well you're the first person who's told me that that seems a bit unfair <laughs> and I said well I'm not being unfair I'm just being honest here and I'll tell you why your application, these are the issues with it. And your CV simply isn't strong. So if you really want to apply for this, and it's not for me to tell you not to apply for it, this is what you're going to need on your CV. And this is what you're going to need on your application to make this fly. So I think it's it's an unfair process for the reasons that we've discussed. And I can't see how you get it better. When you read a grant, what totally puts you off? And I mean, you mentioned a couple of things earlier, but if you're faced with a manuscript, that, where there is really something say okay I'm not even going to bother with this one anymore I think when there's the hypothesis is very vague the language is full of hyperbole so it's completely over the top and however many time I read the aims I can't actually see what it is they're going to do so one of the problems I think is that what the aims are is often the hypothesis so whereas I always think hypothesis is what is it you're actually so what is the theory you are trying to test what is the actual question you're asking yourself and the aims are how will I actually answer that question so if you're just paraphrasing your sort of ideas it's not very helpful so that to me is a real big turnoff and then I think for me the other thing which is very important is so why is that important I mean there's lots of questions I can ask and there are ways to approach it but so what and that, I think, is this thing about hyperbole. So if you say, if I understood exactly how the presynaptic uh, membrane was formed in the CA3 subfield, this will solve Alzheimer's disease. So give us a break. I mean, it, it obviously could contribute. But it's, I mean, that's just a ridiculous statement. But, but there is a tendency for people to write that because there is a tendency for people to say, what's the clinical relevance of your work? Uh, a much more sensible thing would say, this will tell us how synapses form. Obviously, synaptic pathology is, is a part of many disorders and hippocampus could be Alzheimer's disease. So this may in some way inform us about uh, synaptic pathology and diseases. And if we understood that, it may lead to new therapies. You think you might not know where those new therapies are, but you might not need to know that. But I've understood it. So I think it's those, it's that, and, and their presentation, as I say, I think if you, if it's very dense text with lots of pictures, that is with lots of tiny pictures 
and you know connectograms with with everything connected and, and that's the sort of thing or very technical early on again the if your opening paragraph is full of technical language that is uh, i think a problem and, and it, it's something I, I had a long chat to my postdoc i remember that when he was putting in a fellowship was he said i need to put all this detail in i say don't he said yeah but suppose so and so read it who's a great expert in the field i said yeah if the great expert in the field reads it they'll know you so they'll know this but the, the the highest probability is that this is somebody who knows nothing about this field who's going to read it or vaguely knows about it. So if you start going into very detailed technical language about how you would analyze EEGs, you've completely lost them. And then I, think, I just I can't see the wood for the trees here. I can't see where you're going. So clarity. And, and I think clarity and simplicity. Yeah. It's amazing, really. I mean. There's a, a grant I, many years ago where the, where the idea was so, it wasn't anything I worked on, it was glial biology, but the idea was so simple and you think that is such a, a simple idea. And of course, there would be an expert who would know whether it was so simple that it wasn't worth asking because it would already been sold. But it was, you just sort of think, yeah, I can see that. That's a very, I could, I could stop a man in the street and ask him that question and he would be interested in it. So it's simplicity of ideas and clarity of the narrative around it's very important. I mean, I guess for many early career researchers, if they write in a way that's quite simple, maybe scared that they're not sounding professional enough, knowledgeable, knowledgeable mm. enough. And I mean, you see that in research presentation, it's the same where people yeah. kind of try to dump everything in yeah. instead of really taking you on a journey of understanding. It's kind of, it's, it's the same. <laughs> It is. It's a story that I always say it's a, people want to hear a story. So when people stand up and say, so I've stained for protein X and I found it in my cells. I found it in this bit of the brain. Then I did this control without the primary. Then I used this antibody and I used this and this. And then I did a blot. And then I did, and you sort of think, we'll take it. We'll take it that, that it's there. OK, for a paper, you may need to put all that detail in. And for a grant, you may just need to see we verified it using X, Y and Z. But people like stories. They like to know where they're going. And it's also then flatters the reviewer because he says, oh, yes, yes, I know I like this. I think I've understood this. And so and so they feel that they've understood the story and somehow they've contributed to it. So I, th I, I agree with you completely. I think I think taking people somewhere without smothering them with detail is what they want. But when you start, that's the problem, because when I started, that was it. You think no one's going to believe that I've stained this and found a dopamine neuron in these uh, three dimensional cultures we've made. So I'm going to have to show you all the things I've done to prove that it's definitely there. They're not interested. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that uh, you mentioned also earlier was the, that most of the research now is done as, a, as teams, the term people use is team science through collaboration. So can you take us through the way you go about developing a research grant in collaboration with others, either as you being the, the principal investigator as, or as a co-investigator? What, what, what do you try to do in a way to make it work well so that the process of the writing is enjoyable and actually gets there in, in a timely fashion. Yeah, so I, th so I think, so the first thing I would say about working as teams is I think they're much more efficient. And secondly, coming back to a point we made earlier, if you're rejected, and it's and it's spread across a team it's it's a much less personal than when it's you so for your own psyche it's quite good uh, i suppose for me it comes back to some points i've made earlier so first of all if i have something i want to do I, I will look around and say who are the people who can help me do this and so don't have forced marriages so this sometimes happens for example with european grants where you're trying to run consulting and people say oh you need you need this type of country you need this type of center you need this type of investigator and you think yeah but there's no one who works in our area i mean it would look so artificial and it wouldn't work and it would be disruptive so i think you need to look around for for the for the groups that you think will work with you on the project you want to do obviously for people that's a huge help because working with people that you already know makes the whole process much easier and also it's much more efficient, I, I, I would say. But then the critical thing, especially when you're an early stage researcher, is comes back to a point we said about supervisors and, and PIs and, and postdocs and PhD students is if you're part of a big consortium, how to, can I have an identity with that? So, so how is it that I will know that I've contributed this rather I'm just part of this massive European consortium on X1Z? So it's very important, I think, for each, each, each group to bring their own expertise to solve a problem. So, for example, we, we, we do cell therapies on poxies, as I said at the beginning, and I don't, I don't 
make cell therapies. That's not what I do. But, but I've always had a passion for repairing the brain. There are groups that do it, particularly a fabulous group in Lund in Sweden, Marlin Palmer and such like. So, so go and work with them. You have a fantastic complementarity where each will have their own identity. You can't do it without the other. And suddenly it, you start to, it, it starts to work. And from that, other things will come. So then you sort of think, well, actually, we're more interested in looking at subtypes of disease, which is where we can model it with cells, which isn't really the same as transplanting them in. But actually now we can use the same technologies. And that will bring in other people who then say, well, actually, we need people who understand transcript timing. So we better bring in some people who work on that. And so you build a network, I think, through the questions you want to answer as they evolve. And then, and then don't get forced into things which would seem to marry together very well. Now, I think in Europe, we're very good at this. And I think within the UK, we're very good with it. I think it's less true in the States, I think, where people are, are much more lab orientated than, than these big collaborative networks. So that's how I tend to do it. I tend to sort of see who, who it is that, that I can work with both on a personal level and a scientific clinical level without us getting in each other's way with a clear identity and then try to make sure people in the team have a very clear role within it rather than they're just part of this massive consortium. That, is, that I think, is how we do it. I, I mean, it's probably different in different sciences, I'm sure, in some of the more basic like physics and such like, where there's these whole teams trying to find some funny subatomic particle. I don't know how you have an identity within that. And probably the truth is no one has an identity because everyone contributes something to, to the final paper. But, but that's how I try and do it, bringing people together around that. Uh, and then once you've done that, make sure you, you don't relax at that point. So you have to work on it. I mean, that's an imp important point, because in some ways, on, on some of these big grants, you know, you may bring in a contributor, a collaborator that you've actually never worked with, that you yeah. you just know are an expert at something, but you, you haven't actually necessarily interacted with or you have necessarily met. And they, based on what they've published before, based on their expertise, they, you think that they may be able to bring something to the, to the project. So what is it that you do? to make it really work? Yeah, well, it doesn't always really work. I would say that's that's the first thing to say. So you have to accept the fact that, 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 that sometimes these well-intentioned collaborations don't work because people have very different expectations. People aren't quite as transparent as they see. You don't have the level of communication. I think the key is communication. I think trying to keep people on the same page, regular meetings, talking to them about where you're going, what have they discovered, sharing things, and trusting the other person, that's the key thing. So like any relationship, if you suddenly discover that you're working with someone and they've published something which you thought you were a part of, but you're not, you instantly reevaluate everything that you've done and think, what are we doing this for? I mean, it doesn't bother me particularly at a personal level, but you think it's, it's, this is just not something that, that I would encourage or support really. So, so I think it, it's trying to keep people on board is, is by being very inclusive and very transparent in what you're doing i think and that is easier for some people than others well one of the one of the topic i'm really interested in how you can work well with um, early career researchers when they are at the stage of wanting to write an application so you may have you may be working with a postdoc who is really on the threshold of wanting their own independent funding and mm. in a way they are trying to figure out who to work who they should be working with and often you know they may be advised to go and work with somebody else who isn't their PI but then how, you know if you are approached yourself by a postdoc who think that you will be a good host for a fellowship what would advice will you give to this postdoc in terms of developing the a project and working with you so that a fellowship application can be can be put forward because in a way there is an expectation that they it's their idea they're writing the project often there is a misunderstanding about what research independence is about writing yeah. a fellowship doesn't mean that you're going to write the, the whole thing all by yourself and nobody's going to look at it but you know, as a PI what really matters in when you are being approached by by a postdoc like that I think the first thing I would ask is is the project actually something we can do and especially when you're starting with your career because if anyone comes to want to do a PhD or a postdoc with you you're totally flattered a bit like asked to give a talk so you'll just say yes yes come 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 and I always say this to people I'm an applied where we do applied science if you want to know what fundamentally goes wrong with Pogsies and that's what your fellowship is on or you want to understand different 
differentiation of stem cells into X, Y, or Z. However much you want to work with me, this will not happen because uh, you know it's just not what we do and, and we wouldn't be able to support you and help you. So it's very important, I think, for the person coming to you to understand how their project will fit in with what your lab can offer and support. Uh, so that's the first thing. Secondly, you could say, well, actually, that is an interesting avenue. It's not something I, so developing, say, a new model of Pugsies. Well, I know a lot about that. Might not be the most expert person on sonic limbology, but I know people who can. So I can work with you and somebody else to do this. So I think it's for making sure that the project is consistent with what you can do and what you can help support. And then it's also important to me to understand what it is that they would like to do. So ultimately, where would you like to go with your career so so what 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 questions do you want to answer how do you want to answer them and so are we a good fit in a more conceptual level so a lot of people will come to me for example because they like the the lab clinic interface so they'll say i want to come and study models of disease and you've got all the patients and you have all the clinical side of things so i can learn a lot from that and i and you're not a basic biologist or cell biologist but you probably can link me up with people who can study the cells in that sort of level and you sort of think yeah that's fine and then what do you want to do i want to set up my own lab on disease modeling saying well that's terrific very competitive area you'll have to think how you can distinguish yourself from all the other groups that are out there but that would be something where i could see that on your cv working in our lab would be seen as an advantage because of what we do so, so that's what I tend to do when people come to me is I try and help them as much as I can. And then that becomes quite obvious when they come forward with their, if they're writing a fellowship, say this is what I want to fellowship. And I look at it and think, oh, I, know. I don't really know what you're talking about. Because if I have no understanding of what it is you're talking about, I really, I'm the wrong person for it. I mean, one thing that you just said, actually, this also for people to have a sense of the direction that they want to travel, because in a way, the fellowship is just one stage. And, yeah. and as you put a lot of fellowship application, that, that one of the key questions would be, you know, where, where, do, where do you intend to take your research? What will your research group, what will be the big umbrella of what you want to do in science, instead of just this one project that the fellowship is about? And do you, do you think that people think enough about the big umbrella of what, where they want to take their research? It's a difficult one, really. I suppose there are two things I would say to that. One is I think people think when they start, I always remember this myself from research, you sort of, you put in a fellowship application, you get it and you think, that's it, I've got no other ideas, I'm completely finished. So when this is finished, I'm finished because I've got not another single idea in my head, that's everything's on that grant. And then of course, what you realize is as you go along and start doing the work, other questions emerge out of the work that you're doing. So I think the first thing to say is that, is that you're not quite sure what direction your work will take. So don't be too focused on exactly where the end will be. But you do need to have some idea about what sort of field you ultimately will see yourself in. I don't think you need to absolutely i'm going to study the subunit of this glutamate receptor and that is it but i do think you need to say well actually i'm going to be a receptor uh, neuroscientist or pharmacologist or something that's what i want to do or i'm very interested in modeling disease so that's sort of roughly what i want to do i'm not quite sure what disease and i'm not quite sure what models but but i, but I think having some idea of where you want to go because it, it doesn't work if you if, if i think if you're not quite sure i mean of course some people are genuinely undifferentiated they say i want to come and spend a couple of years with you because i want to see what clinical research is about so i can at least have had a flavor of that to decide whether it's what i want to do and i had one postdoc who, who came for that very reason to, to get because they were very good in the lab wanted a bit of clinical exposure and now they've gone back to the lab but they they understand the clinical side so so actually they're, they're probably much more useful to the clinical people they interact with but i think if you have no idea and you, and, and I, I you get a bit of this i think with people coming to me because they'll sort of say well i'm interested in brain diseases i'm interested in stem cells i'm interested in regenerative medicine it'd be great to work with you and you say yeah but but what what are you going to be and they'll sort of say oh, i think i'll do regenerative medicine you think well it's just I mean, i've no idea what that means really and 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 you and you may not know so that's fine but but ultimately i have to try and help you go to where you want to go next and if you don't know where you want to go it's very hard for me to help you uh do that one of the things i like to ask uh, academics is about the grants that they've most cherish the one that was the hardest to get or the one that you were the most excited about if you think of all your years in in, in science what, what is the grant that really is the one that you say, okay, that, that was the one? Well, I think the most important grant, I would say, 
that I ever got was that big European grant on the transplant trial in Parkinson's disease because that was a lot of money and it was at a point when the field was essentially dead so so whilst transplants have been taking place since the 80s by the turn of this century it it seemed as though it had another you know it had its day and we'd spent three years trying to get funding for it and I think if we hadn't got that European grant I don't think we would have got the money. We wouldn't have started transplanting patients. We wouldn't have resurrected that field. And I think we probably still would have stem cell-derived dopamine cells, but we would not be where we are now if we hadn't got that. So to me, that was the most important because it, it launched a whole field that, that people had seen as being dead. And and I have to thank the funders for that because they took a bit of a risk with that because at the, in the climate of the time, it was seen to be not something worth investing in. So they, they, they took that. I think the, so that's, that's the grant, which, which has been the most important to me. I think the grants I've struggled with most, I mean, that was a big struggle, but, but one of the big struggles that I had early on was trying to convince people to invest in us long-term to study natural history of disease. So the, the, the question we were asking, which was not really a question, it was more of an observation. So it was, I want to collect everyone with Parkinson's, follow them forever and just see where they end up and, and follow their path. So I don't have a hub. I don't say there are three types of Parkinson's, two types, eight types. I just want to do a, a natural history study and that will need funding for 20 years. So I got someone that got a fellowship to start it. They finished their fellowship. The, the patients are now three years into the study. I have to find some more money, which I did for the next three years, but I had to slightly change it because everyone says, well, you've already done that. So, so th- that was a project which I believe passionately in. I was very junior when we started with it. It proved to be, I think, very successful. So it's probably the most uh, cited work we'd, we've done but it was incredibly hard to get it funded in. It was very hard to get people to invest long-term in a project where the, where the rewards were clearly going to be not really in the first three years, but 10 years out. It reminds me of an academic from the University of Sheffield who studies bir- some, a bird, I can't even remember the, the name of the bird, but a, a bird population in uh, on the British Isles. And like that, wanted to study these birds over you know, many, many years and also was had a g- great challenge of accessing the, f- the funding o- over a long period of time. Yeah. Sort of longitudinal studies is you know, a great challenge. So- but it's also like trying to find, f- trying to answer some fundamental questions. So there's always this great story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but there was Fred Sanger at the LMB. There was the, the whole center was reviewed in the mid seventies, and the and, and director was asked, "What is this chap Fred Sanger doing? Because he doesn't doesn't seem to have published very much at all, really." And they said, "Oh, he thinks he can sequence DNA, and he's you know doing tons of it's costing us quite a lot of money in restriction enzymes, and this and this and this." And so there was great discussion about because he'd been doing it for so long, was this really worthwhile? Because he'd already received quite a bit of money and it, it didn't seem to go anywhere. And of course they said, oh, well, he's nearly retiring. He's won a Nobel Prize. We'll just say yes. And of course he then publishes paper on DNA sequencing three years later. As far as I know, it's one of the most cited papers in the world. I don't know how many times he's been cited, 70 or 80,000 times. And, and I remember when he died, I think Sidney Brenner had written something in Science saying he would not get funded nowadays. And so, so I think I, th- I think this long-term funding for either a natural history project, as you were describing or we're describing, or really tackling a fundamental question for which technologies and techniques don't exist, and it's going to take you a long time to find it. I, I think that the grants now I don't I don't as I say I'm not a fundamental biologist, so there would never be a question like that which I would need 20 years of investment in. But natural history even our transplant studies the cells take three five ten years before they maximally have a benefit trying to get people to see long term with Mm. the funding and i understand why they're reluctant to do it but but that is a real challenge i think so to to finish up one of the questions i like to ask you is what sort of advice would you give to your young self What would I say to myself if I went back 25 years? I think I would come back to something I've said earlier, really. I think I I wish I had been more focused on what it was I fundamentally wanted to do in research. Confidence in that. And then probably be a bit more, not that I was not collegiate, but probably be more 
collaborative in the areas which I couldn't personally contribute him because I think there was a sort of sense that I needed money from anywhere. I had to stand on my own two feet and I had to be able to do everything myself. And I think those were all mistakes, really. Well, these are very good advice, yeah, really. I think linked to that is, is knowing what you can do. It's knowing what you can do. So what is, what is your unique selling point? So what is it people would like to do research with you for? And, and I think once you've understood that, so I always say I'll never be a basic biologist. I'm not a pure clinical researcher. You sit somewhere between the two, and that's a nice place to be. And I enjoy having conversations with both groups. But I know what I'm not, and that's that I think is very important for researchers, not only to know what they are, but what they definitely are not. All right. Well, Roger, we are going to, um, to finish our discussion. It's been really a pleasure uh, meeting you. And I hope that we have other opportunities to have conversations through the, the network that you lead. Um, thank you very much for sharing your experiences and your words of wisdom. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. You led the discussion beautifully. <laughs> thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewee on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. Thank you.